Welcome to the Awareness Offerings Podcast, a weekly offering of yoga philosophy discussion and guided meditation for the moments we're living in. I'm your host, Laura Tara Davy Joplin. I'm a yoga and meditation teacher, spiritual social media strategist, and integrative counselor, working to integrate the principles of the spiritual path into every aspect of my work and my life. This podcast is an extension of that work as I navigate the world as a white woman devotee of yoga, living at many intersections of privilege, living in the West, and trying to live with awareness. Thank you for joining me in this work. You're listening to episode 67, Attitude About Adjustments. Hello, hello there. Welcome and Welcome to all of us. I'm really excited to be speaking into this microphone right now, given that I just took a two-week hiatus from recording this podcast. It was it wasn't entirely unexpected, but it also wasn't entirely planned. I'm recording this at the very end of December 2022, so it's been you know I, we've been in the swirl of the holiday season, and I was aware that I might want or need some space during this time, but I didn't make any announcements or or plans around it just because I wasn't sure what would happen. I I was holding space for the fact that I could also have so much time and energy and creative flow to be recording uh, podcast episodes during this time. And then it happened that uh, two weeks ago, I simply did not have the energy to record this podcast. I was really feeling the winter transition, the kind of slowing down the inward turn of this season, the hibernation energy that's really present. And my energy was really low. So I decided to honor that rather than use more energy to fight against it and take that week off. I had the intention of recording an episode last week, but then I got a head cold and I was on day three of it and I did not sound like anyone you wanted to hear speaking into a microphone. I was very stuffy. Um, There was a a very, very significant chance I would sneeze or cough or something on the recording. And it just wasn't a podcasting situation. I'm someone who experiences misophonia, which is a condition wherein certain sounds can inspire irrational anger in you. And that's been a really interesting mindfulness practice for me because I get to notice when those things are happening and know that the feelings that I'm having are real, but they're not based in truth and sort of navigate what's really real and what's really going on. But it's just reality for me that certain idiosyncrasies, certain quirks in the way that people speak can sometimes activate that feeling in me. And so knowing that I experience that and other people do too, I wouldn't want to subject anyone to the the very quirky, very idiosyncratic way that I was speaking when I was that sick. You can probably still hear that I'm a little congested, but I felt energetic and inspired and ready to record this podcast. And I'm so incredibly happy that I get to record one more episode in 2022. So this is our final awareness offering of the year. I'm deeply grateful for your presence here. As always, if you want to support what's going on here, best ways to do so are by rating, subscribing, and or leaving a review on whatever platform you're using to listen. You can also share by word of mouth or social media, and all of those actions help other people find this show. Deep gratitude for that. Deepest gratitude that you are here. So let's be here. Let's get into our opening practice of singing the sound of OM one time. Om is said to be the sound, the, the pure essence of consciousness, the energy of primordial consciousness, this very old and vast ancient energy that animates everything from the universe to every breath that we take. So by interacting with Om, we're kind of trying to make that depth the basis of our work, our shared practices here. The mind can be kind of a small window to look through sometimes. It can be kind of chaotic and stressed and um, single focused and all the things that our mind, our beloved mind can be. And OM can broaden the window a little bit and allow us to see and experience more from a place of depth. So that's what we're attempting to do when we use OM. You can join me in singing OM out loud in this practice. You can simply listen as a practice. You can vocalize. You can just make sound as a practice, even if it's not OM. All sound is harmonizing. It creates harmony. 
So if you're coming along with me, you might start by getting your body into any comfortable position. If it's safe, supportive, comfortable for you to do so right now, you might choose to close your eyes or you might just choose to soften your gaze by looking down the tip of your nose or gazing toward the floor in front of you. If it is available to you right now, you might take a breath in through your nose and release that breath. We'll start by making some space and then we'll inhale once more for the sound of OM. Thank you for joining me in that practice. And now for this week's discussion and for our final discussion and practice and offering adventure together of this year, we're going to turn toward empowerment. We're going to center empowerment for this final episode of 2022. And I'm really turning back toward or, or recentering yoga, the yoga practice, my position as a yoga teacher and yoga itself for this episode, which is not to say you have to have a yoga practice or be a yoga teacher to get something out of this. I'm going to try to extract tools and information that can be used by anyone off of the mat as well through this discussion, but we're going to do it by way of yoga the practice of yoga and teaching yoga and what I understand about those things. Yoga as this fundamental doorway that I walked through nine years ago. Yes, over nine years ago that has then led me to everything else in my life. I'm really turning back toward that for this episode. So I, the, the concept the idea, it's a concept, an idea, and a, and a commitment that I'm discussing today. And it's something I've been formulating and developing and learning about over several years. But I taught a yoga class a couple of weeks ago that really gave me new insight into this, this concept that I'm going to be sharing about with you today. And I'm going to explain more about what that is in a moment. But it was really teaching a class a couple weeks ago that gave me new perspective and inspired the intention to record a whole podcast episode about this. And so here we are, final episode of the year. And though it really, it, it's, we use yoga and the yoga practice and what it means to be a yoga teacher as a vehicle for this discussion, it's about empowerment. And I feel really good about ending the year that way. So... As a yoga teacher, as someone who shares yoga tools and yoga practices with groups of people on a fairly regular basis, pretty regular basis, I have the option to offer adjustments, meaning that I could offer cues, tools, tips to the people who are practicing in front of me on how to adjust their yoga poses, how to make different changes and tweaks to their yoga poses. And... Over the years, I have decided I do not give hands-on physical adjustments, meaning I do not touch people in order to give them adjustments. That's a commitment and an understanding that I came to about myself several years ago. It's something I've understood for a while, and I'll talk more about why that is in a moment. So that principle, I'm not giving hands-on adjustments. I'm not touching people for adjusting or to give adjustments. That's something that's been the foundation for a while. But recently, as I was teaching this class and watching my, my folks practice a couple weeks ago, I discovered that it actually goes even deeper and maybe even further than that for me. Meaning, I take the stance that I am barely, if ever, going to give adjustments at all in a practice ever as in not even verbal adjustments because there are kind of two there might be more but to my understanding there are two main categories of how you can offer an adjustment a tweak a change to someone for their pose you could do it physically hands-on through touch you could do it verbally by suggesting that they move their limb in a different place or 
bend their knee a little more or turn a different way, just verbally suggesting that. I have decided in addition to not giving hands-on adjustments, I also rarely, if ever, give verbal adjustments. As in, I don't really give adjustments in yoga practices, in my classes that I teach at all. So I titled this episode Attitude About Adjustments, and there it is. Right off the top, that's my attitude about adjustments, is that no. (laughs) The answer for me is no, not giving them. And I'll talk a little bit about why I, or how really I developed my understanding of hands-on adjustments and why they are not the thing for me. And then I'll talk about how that has led me to no adjustments, period. And what that means to me, where I'm coming from on that, and how that really, to me, centers empowerment as we close the year, just riding this wave of empowerment. So... I heard in my teacher training, which I took in 2016, over six years ago now, that some high percentage of all yoga injuries come from a bad adjustment. I think it was like 80 something percent. One of our teachers in the training at the time told us of of yoga injuries come from a bad physical adjustment or a physical adjustment that um, is maladaptive if we don't want to use the word bad. Either way, I heard that statistic. I tried to look it up to see if that is quantifiably true, if there is empirical evidence, right? I'm a a social scientist. I just graduated with a master's degree in social work. I'm a psychology student. I um, am, am moving into the mental health profession. So I was looking for quantifiable empirical evidence that that statistic bears out. I could not find it. Doesn't mean it's not true, but I couldn't find it. I did find several statistics that say about 12% of people who've received a physical adjustment experience injury. So I don't have conclusive numbers to give you, but anecdotally, I have heard that a lot of yoga injuries come from physical adjustments. So already in the foundation of my training, I was aware that there was a, a deep risk associated with physical adjustments. And that is where I came from initially. I can admit and own and and see clearly that as a new teacher at that time, it, it partially came from a place of anxiety, right? But not entirely unfounded anxiety where I was aware of the immense responsibility of, of stewarding people through a journey in their own bodies and that we have to care for the physical body however we can. And I wanted to minimize risk, just the risk of physical injury to people that felt like a deep responsibility. And so that's where I started with my hesitance, my hesitation, I guess, to offer hands-on physical adjustments. And then as I, as I grew as a teacher, as I grew up as a person, as I began to understand myself as a, as a woman in the world and the world itself and how the world treats women, you know, a lot of my development as a yoga teacher coincided with the, the height of the Me Too movement of the, um, the Christine Blasey Ford and Brett Kavanaugh hearings. So there was a lot of discussion around consent, sexual assault, bodily autonomy um, happening as I grew up as a yoga teacher. And at the same time, there was also a, an upswell of discussion about um, abuse in the yoga world, which is a real thing um, that you can, if you feel called to know more about, there is a lot of literature and a lot of podcasts and a lot of personal stories out there. Um, but that was also happening. So that began to become a part of my landscape and my commitment to not offering physical adjustments or my, my, um, understanding that I probably didn't want to, because I don't think at that time I was like, yes, no, never. But even at that time, I was pretty much coming to a place of understanding that I really didn't want to do this. And it deepened because of this landscape of cultural, social, personal conversation and understanding around agency, personal agency, you know, the, the, the sovereignty or the, the, Um, sacredness of our own physical bodies and having agency and empowerment in our bodies and, and sexual assault. And so as I observed that and understood more around that, that only bolstered this, this idea that I don't know if I want to do this because very simply it's another risk. It's another layer of risk to, to in, to introduce touch into the yoga setting into the, the group yoga practice setting. 
And the reason I think that is, is because, you know, first of all, yoga practice is a a deep space. It's sometimes a vulnerable space and an intimate space. It's a space that involves a person returning to themselves sometimes, connecting deeply with themselves and who they are beyond the noise of their thoughts, who they are when they're present in the moment, which can happen through the body and the breath. It's a very deep and intimate space. And with that can come a level of vulnerability. And when you introduce touch into that kind of space, it can introduce a certain kind of energy that may or may not be beneficial to the people who are practicing yoga. As people are getting really deep and intimate with themselves, that can stir up a lot of past experiences, right? The sort of the the blueprints of traumatic experiences that are stored in the body or just different awareness of ourselves. And so touch can be, what's the word that I'm looking for? It can be jarring, right? When you are getting deep within yourself and someone touches you and sort of physically enters into the very deep and intimate space you're creating with yourself that can be jarring that can activate sort of these past blueprints of trauma if that's something that we've experienced and it can just invite a level of intimacy with another person that's not comfortable or not wanted when we're really trying to be intimate with ourselves and I'm aware that there have been systems that have been you know, put in place. People have tried to really introduce consent into this culture of group yoga classes and hands-on adjustments. Um, teachers have asked students um, whether they're comfortable. I know some teachers will say, everybody close your eyes and then raise your hand if you don't want to be touched so no one feels called out. I know there are cards that some people will put Um, you know, have their students put in front of the yoga mat where they can flip it to one side if they're good with being touched, the other side if they're not. And I want to really acknowledge the value in those and the intention of cultivating more consent. I think that's always a good thing. But in my personal opinion, I'm fully moving into opinion here. I don't think at least in my my experience and my philosophy and commitments as a yoga teacher, I don't think that's enough. I don't think that quite does it. Because no matter how much we try, as if, if, we're, if I'm coming, if I'm speaking to this from the perspective of a yoga teacher, no matter how much we try to offer our students the option to say yes or no, to touch, there's always a power differential. There's always a dynamic of power at play where if I'm the yoga teacher, I am the teacher. Whether I want to position myself as that or not, I am quote unquote the expert. I have the quote unquote wisdom. And again, I'm not saying I believe those things about myself, but that is the dynamic at play when there's a teacher-student relationship. And so I don't know that it's ever possible for a student or a person coming to a yoga class to say yes or no to the teacher touching them completely free of any of the dynamics at play. Even if they, you know, feel as if, oh, I can say, I I can say no to this teacher. There's still this dynamic of, oh, this person is something of an authority. So there may be this, this stickiness to it where it's like, well, I don't know. Can I actually say no? I want to, you know, we are human beings. A lot of us grow up with people-pleasing tendencies because we live in a society that socializes us that if we check off enough boxes and do enough things well that we'll get ahead in life and that can develop people-pleasing and that's fully understandable but that tendency can absolutely come into the yoga space and people may feel like well I can't let this teacher down or I have to do well I have to be good at yoga I don't think we can be good at yoga but it's totally valid that that mindset would be present and so it might not be fully possible for a person to say no to their yoga teacher without or or with full, you know, meaning it fully, right? Or being fully comfortable saying no to this person that's in a perceived position of authority. And I'm aware there are people that will walk into a place fully grounded in their boundaries and they're totally cool to say no but I know that's not always the case and so I think it's just muddy and sticky and there's not ever this full possibility of of pure consent in a power differential like that and so when I started to think about the layer of bodily autonomy and consent 
that only fueled my drive to, you know, consider that I, yeah, I don't really know that I want to give people physical adjustments. And then there was a third layer, a third piece of this commitment that has developed more recently that has only solidified and really brought me to the place where I can say confidently, no, I'm not giving physical adjustments. And what sealed the deal is my understanding of yoga that is empowering for all people. I'm not going to say trauma-informed yoga, although that is what informs what I'm about to say, because I've been learning more about trauma-informed yoga from teachers whom I love and respect and who are my teachers who are studying it and implementing it in their classes. I'm not calling it trauma-informed yoga from my perspective because I have not currently taken a training to be a certified trauma-informed teacher, and I want to be in that integrity, although as one of my teachers who studies this has said, you know, all yoga should be trauma informed, but the constructs and the power dynamics and the sort of westernization of yoga that are present where we make the practice a lot about what we can do in our bodies or, you know, advertising and yoga culture really only represents a handful of types of people in certain bodies and identities. All of that makes it so that yoga is not actually trauma-informed for a lot of people. And for me, what that means is fully empowering. I associate trauma-informed with fully empowering because a lot of times traumatic experiences make us feel just our nervous systems feel injured by these experiences that are fully out of our control. And that can make us feel like we have a lack of agency and a lack of power. And to me, the opposite of that is empowerment. So yoga should be empowering for all people. It's not always, but there has been a conversation recently in the last several years about the importance of of making sure yoga is empowering for all people. These practices that are so impactful and deep and transformative should be accessible to all people. And there have been these conversations about how we make that happen. And a lot of my beloved teachers have been studying these concepts and I've learned from them kind of what it means to teach a yoga class that's empowering for all people. And as I have learned about that, that has only solidified my view that I'm not giving hands-on adjustments. And the reason that is, is because if I am suggesting to someone, in this case, through a physical touch or movement of their body, which is not my body, which in itself can can encroach on someone's personal empowerment. But if I'm making this adjustment, I'm suggesting that there is a right way to do the pose, that there is a standard that each person in a class should be meeting. And if they're not, it's my job or my authority to physically touch them or move their body to make sure they're meeting this standard. And through the principles of trauma-informed yoga and the conversations that have been happening around how we make yoga more empowering, it's become clear to me and to a lot of folks suggesting that there is a standard, a right way to do a pose or to do a practice that is disempowering. That is suggesting that someone else, in this case, the yoga teacher, has more agency than the person doing the practice to decide what the practice should look like, what it should feel like. And that's disempowering. And the the aim of, of true empowerment in yoga is to hand the tools to folks and say, get deep with yourself, right? And that requires affirming choice, always affirming that you are actually the the master of this practice you actually get to decide what feels good to you what feels reasonable what feels supportive that is up to you and that is the most empowering thing and once i really digested that and understood that that was the final piece that needed to lock into place for me to understand yeah no i'm not giving physical adjustments i'm not perpetuating the idea that there's one way to do a yoga pose and i'm also not encroaching on people's physical bodies and consent and i'm also not risking injury all these things came together to really affirm for me yeah physical adjustments are not for me But as I said earlier, that's actually only the beginning (laughs) because now, and, and this has been brewing for a while, but it really just clicked. It solidified in my head as I was teaching this class a couple weeks ago, because now I'm taking it even further to say, I'm not giving adjustments, period. 
most of the time. I'm not going to say it's a, it's a blanket statement. Uh, as you may have heard me say on this podcast before, nuance is my best friend. I love nuance. I don't think anything is ever the hard and fast rule or standard in every single situation. There are intricacies and subtleties and nuances to everything, including this. So I'm not going to say I'm never giving any kind of adjustments and I'll explain my, my, um, exceptions in a moment, but generally I have come to believe no adjustments ever. And before I continue with that, it sounds like one of my neighbors is doing yard work. I can hear the sound of it. You might as well. So I just want to give you a heads up. I'm already deep in this recording, so I'm not stopping. That's just part of our, our present moment experience. But anyway, no adjustments ever. And the, the moment that really illuminated this for me was when I was in a yoga class. I was teaching a couple weeks ago and I was teaching a pose called Revolved Triangle. Parivrita Trikonasana. And it is a shape in which both legs are extended. One foot is toward the front of the mat. The Another foot is backward toward the middle or back of the mat. The back toes are turned forward. There's extension in the front leg, although soft bend in the knee, totally fine. And then we're twisting. We have one hand on the ground or on a block. I love a block. I love to make my arms longer in a twist that really requires a lot of rotation in the upper back, which this one does. And then we're turning the upper torso toward the front leg that's extended. We might put a hand on the hip, the the same hand on the same side of the body as the extended leg. We might put that hand on the hip. We might extend that arm. There's a lot of options, but I was teaching that pose. And I cued my people into that shape. And then I looked around the room because even though I'm not giving adjustments, I'm still very um, invested in what experience my students might be having in their in their poses. I want to make sure no one is visibly struggling or no one is doing anything that is obviously going to injure them. And hint, hint, those are the cases in which I might give an adjustment, which I'll say more about later. But I, and I just want to make sure everyone, I want to, I want to give my energy and attention to everyone. So I cued them into the pose and I looked around and I saw one of my students turning the opposite way rather than turning toward the front leg, if you will, the extended leg, this student was turning away from the front leg. And turning toward the leg is the quote unquote classical form of this pose. We were working toward that shape. This student was turning away. And for some reason, my first reaction in my head was to say, oh, maybe I should give a verbal cue to remind folks that we're turning toward the front leg. And I say for some reason, because I don't even know why I did that, because I have been aware for years that it is a fully valid option in any spinal twist where we're twisting toward a leg, that twisting away from that leg is a completely valid option that gives the torso, that gives the belly, that gives the tissue of the upper body, whatever we might need it for, it gives that more space. So I've always known that. But for some reason, in my head, my first reaction was to maybe give that student an adjustment to say, you turn toward the other leg. But I caught myself immediately and I thought to myself, why would I do that? Yes, maybe she heard me incorrectly. Maybe she wasn't aware that we were turning toward the front leg, but maybe she was doing that on purpose. This was the student uh, was a a person who identifies as female, uses she, her pronouns. Um, But maybe she was doing that for a reason. And who am I to say, she should be turning the other way. That might be a conscious choice on her part to give her torso more space by turning away from the front leg. And of course, like I said, it could have been a case wherein she was mistaken and she heard me wrong. But to me, my my, um, perspective on that is so what in the end? What is it going to harm if she turns the other way? Whereas if she did it on purpose and I chose to quote unquote correct her on that, I believe there is real harm in there, in that. I believe that my responsibility to affirm someone's choice, even if, even if I don't know that they're making that choice on purpose, I believe my responsibility to affirm someone's choice trumps my responsibility 
or, or whatever responsibility I might have to make sure someone is doing the pose, quote unquote, the right way, or that they might not, they, you know, to make sure they might not be making a quote unquote mistake or that they, you know, didn't mishear me or something. To me, that is, that pales in comparison to my responsibility to affirm choice, to to create a culture of empowerment where people feel, everyone in the class feels safe and supported to do whatever they want in practice because it is their right to make sure that they feel exactly how they want and need to feel in practice. And so I chose not to say anything. Again, even I, I was willing to run the risk of knowing that she might actually not have been doing that on purpose to make sure that I was not invalidating her choice. And that would have gone for the whole class, right? If, if everyone in the class heard me give a verbal adjustment to one student um, to tell them to turn the other way that they were turning, whether consciously or unconsciously, that could suggest to them, oh, there's a right way to do this. And I do not want to risk planting that seed for people. And that is why I decided usually no adjustments, period. Because even if we're not touching people, suggesting that they do their yoga poses, their asanas, their shapes differently still suggests that there is a standard that everyone should be trying their hardest to meet. Even if they don't meet it, that there's still a standard that they're being held to. And so I'm not going to do that. And of course, you know, I'll give cues. I love alignment cues. I love to offer that here are certain things you can do in your body to have an experience in this pose. But I leave it at that. I offer these general cues that I know have worked in my own body and can keep people safe and and create an experience in a pose. And then I stop at that. Once I look around and see what folks are doing, I want to honor that fully. And like I suggested earlier, this is not a fully blanket statement. There are moments where I might offer an adjustment in a pose, always verbally, right? We are not doing physical. That's, that is a, a non-starter. But if someone, if I see someone who is clearly struggling, right? Who is, um, kind of moving or like, what's a way to say this? that doesn't sound disempowering. Like, for example, there was a time when someone was, um, working their way into a pigeon pose, which is a deep hip opener. And I could see them kind of moving their front leg around a lot. And I heard the way their breath was. It sounded a little flustered. I heard them making noise and they looked generally frustrated. And so with my own sense of awareness, I could pick up on the fact that this was probably not a case of, I'm just trying to find the right spot. It sounded like struggle and it sounded like frustration. And so as a form of an adjustment, I offered them a different pose. And that's probably going to be my go-to rather than saying, here's a different way you can try to make your body fit this pose. My go-to is going to be, here's a different pose that's going to create a similar experience, but might be one that meets your body better because we're always trying to meet the body. We're not trying to make the body fit the pose. We're trying to meet our bodies exactly where they are. And so in a case where someone is clearly struggling, clearly frustrated, I might offer a different pose. And then in cases where people are clearly going to hurt themselves. So if there is an alignment happening in the body that over time could cause stress injury, like a hyperextension in the knee where the knee is bent way out over the ankle in certain bent knee poses, not even all of them, but certain, I might offer an adjustment there. Or if, especially in something like um, like a backbend, if someone's back, if someone's bending from their lower back rather than their upper back, that can cause a lot of stress on the low back. So I might offer an adjustment there, fully with the intention of keeping people safe, because that's a part of empowering people is making sure they feel safe in their bodies. And so if there's clear risk of injury, I will offer an adjustment. But my strategy for doing that is always to offer it to the whole class first, to offer it as just a general cue. So say I get get folks into a backbend and I can see that there's one or two people really bending from their low back. I'll say to the whole class, squeeze your glutes or something like that or, or um, round your low back a tiny bit 
just to offer the cue to stabilize the lower back to everyone. Because first of all, everyone can benefit from that. And secondly, it doesn't make anyone feel called out. And that can also feel disempowering. It can perpetuate shame. And so always offering it as a full cue first. And then if that person still seems to be doing something that might injure them, I might walk over to them um, or, or say their name if I know them well and offer the adjustment, but always doing it as a general cue first. So even in the cases where I am offering adjustments, I feel really committed to still doing it in a way that's empowering and not shaming, which means always offering different poses rather than forcing the body into any standard of a shape because that perpetuates shame. It perpetuates different body ideals that are, you know, present in our, our wider culture that can be harmful. Um, and then offering injury prevention adjustments as general cues to everyone. So no one's getting called out. So that's just kind of a, that's a, that's a a reflection on my strategies, but it all comes down to this commitment that I feel really solid in, in my eighth year as a yoga teacher, I'm not giving people adjustments. I'm certainly never touching them. I'm not invading their physical space when they're being as intimate with themselves as people are usually being in a yoga practice. And I'm not even offering verbal adjustments because I'm not holding anyone to any standards ever. I'm always prioritizing affirming their choice, except in the case of clear struggle or energy injury. And even then it's going to be as empowering as possible. And that's the thing. That's why I I suggested at the beginning of this episode that in this final awareness offering of 2022 together, we're centering empowerment because that's what it's about. It's about ensuring that people feel empowered People feel as if they have you know, agency in their own bodies to be present with themselves, um, agency to you know, be who they are in their own lives. And I think that that can only help all of us because if more people feel empowered to be present and to be authentic, that means we have more presence and authenticity going around everywhere. And that only benefits all of us. And so I close this this year of podcasting and this year in general. It's been another fun one with the the blessing and the hope that there's more presence and authenticity for all people. And I do think that prioritizing empowerment as a yoga teacher is one inroad to that. But the empowerment and authenticity are the goal, whether we're a yoga teacher or not, whether you're just practicing yoga or whether, you know, you're deciding to go for a run today and you maybe feel a little more inspired to do what is most empowering and authentic to you, even if it's not what, you know, culture or standards or society might tell you that you should. I hope that that is the takeaway that anyone listening to this can can hold on to, regardless of whether you practice yoga, teach yoga or not. And now it's time to put it into practice. Our final awareness offering meditation of the year, regardless of when you're listening to it, it's still the final one I'm recording of the year. And we will now in an embodied, experiential, present moment way, center empowerment. So here is the moment in the awareness offerings podcast where we shift from discussion into meditation, from talking about it to practicing about it. And I couldn't offer a meditation in conjunction with a discussion about affirming choice without doing everything I can to affirm choice as we prepare to to meditate together. So first of all, as I always say, if you are not in a position where it's safe or comfortable for you to pause and to get still and to do some contemplative work, you might pause the podcast and come back when you are. Say if you're driving or showering or something like that. Unless you want to sit on the floor of your shower and meditate, I affirm that choice completely. If you are ready to meditate now, the first thing I'll offer is get your body into a comfortable position. Any position at all that gives you space in your spine, but you get to decide. You have choice in deciding exactly what you need in that. The spinal column is the home of the nervous system. It's the central line of energy in the body. And so when there's space there, things can feel more settled, more connected, more fluid. But that doesn't mean there's one way we have to sit. We don't have to be sitting cross-legged on the floor. We can be. 
if we do, I would say let's put something under the hips to uh, get a little height under the tailbone and give the low back more space. You might be sitting with your back against the wall. You might be sitting with your legs in any type of shape or position that feels comfortable and supportive. You might be in a chair or on your bed. That's only to name a few ways you could meditate. You could even be laying down. Although, you know, you run the risk of falling asleep, but if that's the choice you make, fully affirming that. So find the position that gives you space. The next place where we have choice in meditation is the gaze. You have the option to close your eyes. You never have to. It can sometimes feel unsafe or just unmanageable to close the eyes. If our eyes feel super busy and it feels like we're forcing ourselves to close them, or if not being able to see feels unsafe for any reason or any other reason at all, we might not close the eyes. And that's where we can implement a soft gaze. We have the option to maybe imagine looking toward the tip of the nose, turning the eyes downward, or look down toward the floor softly in front of us. In any of those options or whatever option you choose, simply softens the eyes, turns down the dimmer on the, the vision, the, the physical sight, so that we have a little more room for internal sight to turn our awareness toward ourselves. So you turn your awareness toward yourself. And we also have choice in the way that we do that. One of the more kind of classical, widely used tools for cultivating present moment awareness is breath awareness. And it's a valid choice. The breath is a present moment phenomenon. And so as we watch the breath, right, we notice that it's happening. We make note of the different pieces of the breath, like the sound and the temperature and the way the air moves. That can bring us into the moment because it's happening right now. It can also feel you know, stressful, uncomfortable, unmanageable to notice the breath. We can feel like there's pressure to take a deeper breath, which can then constrict our breath. Um, we, for any reason, we might not feel comfortable noticing the breath. So you might begin to bring awareness to your inhales and exhales. You might bring awareness to anything else that's happening right now, because the breath is not the only thing. You might feel your body in any way. You might feel the contact that your lower body or any part of your body is making with the surface that you are on right now. Maybe it's your tailbone on the floor, your feet on the floor, your back against the wall. You might feel the contact with the surface. That's happening right now. You might feel the clothing on your skin, the weight and texture of fabric. That's happening right now. You might feel the air on your skin. You might listen to sounds you can hear right now. You might even notice a smell. All of these things are present moment phenomena. And so you have the choice to turn your focus to whichever one feels like the most supportive access point to you right now. And it could change, right? So you turn toward your access point into the moment and maybe you give yourself a little time and space to land there, to practice sending your focus there, your energy and your attention there. And one of the ways, many ways, as you might have noticed, we've already had all these different opportunities to choose empowerment already. And there's more in meditation. It goes beyond just the physical, just as so much of spiritual practice and yoga goes beyond just the physical. As in meditation, we have choice. And one of the other ways that we can practice empowerment is in how we interact with our own minds with our own thoughts. You see, there's this myth that we have to have zero thoughts in order to meditate right, quote unquote, right. Once again, falling into this conditioned trap where we feel like there's a standard we need to be striving toward. And in meditation, it's often blank mind is the standard. And I want us to center empowerment here by throwing that standard out the window. In this case, the window of the mind. But you might envision throwing it out a physical window if that is your choice. 
because that's not the goal. There isn't really a goal in meditation other than being exactly where we are, which means we don't have to change anything. We might just go somewhere else. We don't have to change our thoughts. We don't have to force our thoughts out. Force can feel disempowering because it implies that we are not okay as we are. It can engender shame. And so we don't have to force the thoughts out. We might just want to go somewhere else. Like we have the choice to stand up from the room that we're in and walk to a different room. Same thing with the thoughts. We can try to get up out of the mind and go somewhere else that might be more supportive to us. And that in itself can be an empowering choice, choosing where we want to put our presence, but also empowering in the sense that we're not forcing anything. We're not suggesting to ourselves that there's something wrong with us for having a human mind that thinks, which is what it's made to do. So as you continue to notice the access point into presence that you have chosen, whether it's your breath, your body, any sensation you're aware of, and your mind starts to interrupt, which it probably will. First point of empowerment is no shame. Acknowledging that the thought is happening and that in itself can give you more awareness. You can notice your thinking. So that means that your thinking mind is not the only part about you that's real. So you notice it, you acknowledge it, and then you decide to make the choice that's empowering for you. Maybe that's just letting the thoughts play out, kind of letting the thoughts air out, like we talked about on a previous podcast a couple weeks ago. Letting the thoughts kind of run their course with some conscious awareness, just noticing it. Maybe the choice is to metaphorically walk somewhere else in in your being, to go somewhere else other than your mind. And that could be returning from your mind to your access point of presence. So maybe you acknowledge the thoughts that they're happening, you allow them, and then you decide to go somewhere else. You come back to your breath or you come back to the sensation of your body touching the surface you're sitting on or you come back to the feeling of your skin or your clothes. Whatever it is, you could make the choice to come back. And you might allow that to be your practice. Using your own spiritual empowerment, the inherent truth that you get to choose how you want to deeply connect with yourself and your moment because you deserve those things. Using that to draw yourself back into the moment over and over again. It doesn't have to be any fancier than that. It can be witnessing everything that's going on with empowered awareness, noticing when the thoughts happen, maybe being with them, maybe acknowledging them and then going somewhere else. Using your tools to draw yourself back. Oh, there's a thought. I acknowledge it. All right, I'm back to the feeling of my skin or the sound of my breath. Oh, there's a thought. I'm going to let that one play out for a second, but I'm going to do it knowing that I'm, I'm doing it from a conscious place. And then eventually I might come back to my breath or to the feeling of the floor underneath me and just doing that over and over. Like building a muscle, just cultivating your capacity to return to yourself and knowing that you as yourself right now don't need fixing. You're good. You can just be present to what's here. Even and especially if you're present to uncomfortable realities, right? Meditation doesn't mean peace or bliss all the time. It might mean that in returning to ourselves, we're returning to a reality that we feel really tired or really sad. We're having some dark thoughts, whatever it might be. The purpose of empowerment and practice is to know that that too is okay. And we can choose to fully be with that. Just as we'd fully be with the breath or the mind. So using your tools, your empowerment to draw yourself into your moment, however you might. And we'll give ourselves some time and space to do that here.
And from the place that you've landed yourself in, I invite you to sort of widen the lens if it's feasible, just to notice the experience you're having in this present moment practice. What's it been like to use your tools to draw yourself into the moment? Just acknowledging and receiving the effects of your own practice, of your own empowerment. And then you can choose to transition yourself out of this meditation, however you might. You might take a sighing breath or two. You might stretch your arms overhead, start to move your body around. You might slowly blink your eyes open. You might decide you want to stay here a little longer. The point is that you get to choose. The idea that there is a standard we must strive to meet always, even in our spiritual practice, is one that's rooted in toxic forms of supremacy, in toxic capitalism, that there's always an end goal. But maybe the moment is what it is, and the empowerment is allowing whatever experience that we're having, and we need to have It comes back to that presence and authenticity. And as we close the year together, with all my heart, I wish those qualities for you, for your experience. Sending boundless love as I close this final awareness offering of 2022. Thank you for joining me for this awareness offering and for going into embodied practice with me. You can find me on social media at Laura Tara, L-A-U-R-A-T-A-R-A on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. My intro and outro music was created by none other than my very own brother, Oxella Sun, O-X-E-L-A-S-U-N, whom you can also find on Instagram.